Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Russell here. Hello, it's Ben. Today on the show, we have Matt Appleford from Truckee, California. Matt owns his own adventure, ski, and snowboard travel company called The Adventure Project. His business specializes in running free-ride camps in Gulmarg and the Indian Himalayas. Gulmarg receives over 50 feet of snow per year. Gulmarg also is one of the largest gondolas in the world, almost 4,300 feet. So Matt Appleford, who are you? You've got this fantastic Australian accent, and now Russell's telling me you're from California. Um, yes, I, I actually have multiple accents. Um, I was born and raised in England and lived there for 18 years and then uh, moved to Australia when I was 18 and kind of lived there on and off for about 13 years and then uh, moved to America kind of full-time um, nearly five years ago now. I met my wife in um, 2008 and we got married in 2010 and uh, I haven't been back to Australia since. So uh, America is, is home and uh, we just moved from uh, Telluride, Colorado um, in mid-November to uh, beautiful uh, Truckee, California and uh, now I base myself out of uh, Squaw Valley. So you spent quite a bit of time in Telluride. Could you tell us if it's worth the drive from Denver? I am very biased, obviously, but I have very fond memories of Telluride and love the place. It's beautiful. The skiing and riding is amazing. The uh, side country, if you're into that, just outside of the resort is some of the best in the world. Um, It's very dangerous. But in its day, I mean, you can have some of the best skiing in the world that's very uh, easily accessible. So uh, I definitely love the place. Um, Seven hours or six hours, depending on how fast you drive from Denver, would I say it's worth it? Definitely. Okay, so six or seven hours. Where else could you go for that distance? I'm trying to think. Probably Kansas. (laughs) I think Nebraska is pretty close, too. Yeah, Maybe even Albuquerque. No skiing. I hear that's nice, but... (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how good their skiing is, um, but uh, yeah, Telluride is definitely, if you've not been there before, which I was surprised to hear, you should definitely go there. Yeah, I'm, I'm planning on it in the future. So you spent a little bit of time in Australia. Is there skiing there? There is, yeah. Um, a lot of people don't know about the skiing in Australia. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's world class, although they do charge world class prices. <laughs> I worked at a place called Mount Hotham, which is in the state of Victoria, about five hours north of Melbourne, and I did uh, nine years there, and it's a great little mountain. I mean, they need the snow, but when they get it, the terrain for advanced skiers and riders is awesome. You know, I was there for a while, so I knew the place very well, and um, I actually had my best ever powder day was in Mount Hotham. It was the 24th of July, 2004, and we had a meter of snow in one night, and the skiing the next day was amazing it's just a shame i didn't have any fat skis and i <laughs> floundered immensely but uh <laughs> definitely got a few face shots that day sometimes i even stayed up on my skis too but uh yeah that was i have fond memories of mount hotham and uh i'd say that if you're in australia 
Um, you know, the, the best time to go is kind of in August. If you're there, you know, then definitely I would, I would check out a week of skiing in Australia. It's, it's fun. Now, I've heard there's skiing in New Zealand too. Which has better skiing, New Zealand or Australia? Well, I mean, you're touching on a potentially bit of a raw nerve there, <laughs> Australian and New Zealand uh, rivalry. Um, that, I mean, the terrain in New Zealand, you'd have to say it's better. Wow. Um, but the snow conditions really vary, and, and it's ironic in that whenever Australia has a good year for snow, then New Zealand seems to suffer, and then vice versa. So when New Zealand's having a good year, Australia normally has a bad one. It's funny in that it's actually cheaper for most Australians to fly across New Zealand and go skiing than it is to stay at home and ski back in the Australian resorts. So I haven't personally skied in any of the New Zealand resorts, but it's on my bucket list. Um, I definitely love to go. Did you learn how to ski in England? Are there mountains there as well? (laughs) Um, I actually learned to ski in Scotland. And the first time I skied wasn't even on snow. It was on a dry ski slope. Yeah, I've so. heard of those. You, can you ski on the rain there? Isn't it just continuously raining? It's like a water slide. <laughs> it's water skiing. Well, if it was raining, that would be kind of the equivalent of a powder day, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> these, the way that it works, these, these dry... And the technology um, has improved because the old stuff that I grew up skiing on... Um, Imagine like skiing on like plastic bristles that are kind of in a diamond pattern with a hole cut out in the middle. You have your skis, you slide down on that, and they spray water on it to decrease the friction. Um, so they actually have a sprinkler system, and when they turn the sprinklers on, that's when you got excited because you could go faster. So it's, it's funny that you mentioned skiing in the rain because that would be the equivalent of a powder day on, uh, <laughs> on a dry ski slope. That's probably a lot of fun to fall on too. It's actually not. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, The old stuff that was kind of hollow in the middle, that was notorious for uh, dislocating thumbs and destroying joints. And yeah, you had to completely cover up, even in the middle of summer, you know. I mean, and that's where skiing in jeans was definitely a necessity. (laughs) That makes sense. But I didn't know any better, you know. That's what I I started skiing on. Um, The next year, we got lucky in that. we went up to one of the proper ski resorts in Scotland and skied on snow for the first time. And, and snow snow is obviously, it's a lot slidier. It's a lot more fun than skiing on a plastic ski slope and just absolutely loved it. For a long time, you know, that was kind of what I knew about skiing was skiing up in Scotland uh, on blue ice and <laughs> in amongst the rocks and the heather <laughs> and skiing uh, closer to home on dry plastic ski slopes. I took my first ski trip when I was in high school to uh, the French Alps, and that was just mind-blowing. That was amazing. And then really, I didn't ski much after that. When I moved to Australia when I was 18, uh, the first ski trip I had was to the ski fields when I was uh, at university to a place called Falls Creek, and that was awesome. Yeah, I got into ski instructing in uh, 2000 after I did a summer camp in uh, the United States in uh, New York on Lake Champlain. And started teaching skiing in uh, Killington and you know that kind of got me into the ski industry and that was oh 14 years ago now. So man I want to transition to the Adventure Project which is a company that you started how long ago? 4 years ago. 4 years ago. Okay. And the tagline on your website says taking adventurous minded skiers and boarders to exotic destinations around the world in search of powder in cultural immersion. And boy, is that true from what I saw. At least most of the testimonies are, you know, expected to have this great skiing, and that obviously didn't disappoint. But they're also so excited about what they got from the cultural end. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you pick your destinations? 
Definitely. Gulmarg, I mean, out of all of the destinations that we want to offer, we've kind of started with probably, if we jump straight into the deep end uh, of the pool. Um, it just kind of transpired where I had connections there. Um, I'd been going there since 2008 with a different business. Um, and then when I moved to uh, America full time, then I just, I think in 2011, I just thought to myself, well, you know, there's not many American people going there. It would be nice to open up this place to the American market and and see how it goes. As you say, it, it's not just about the skiing and the, the quality of the of the snow. And a big part of it is the whole adventure of it and especially the cultural immersion. And what I love about it is going back there every year and seeing the people again and receiving a uh, a warm welcome every time. And meeting people that are genuinely happy to share their part of the world with you. The state of Kashmir um, during the 1990s was sadly pretty much a war zone. And since 2000, it's calmed down a lot. I mean, there's, there's still flare-ups, especially in the summertime. Where we are in Gulmarg, you know, you're kind of away from any of that. And it feels just like its own little slice of heaven right there. But the, the, the locals are genuinely excited to finally see the tourists coming back. And the Gulmar Gondola that was made in 2005 has been an integral part of, of bringing back the, uh, the tourists. Yeah, so it's second highest in the world? So, yeah, that depends on who you talk to. Um, <laughs> a lot of people seem to have the highest gondola in the world, but it's definitely one of the highest. It's, I mean, it's amazing. It, it gives access to such a huge mountain that gets an absolute ton of snow and there's hardly anyone there. Uh, I mean, it, you can genuinely find untouched snow, even if it hasn't snowed for a week or two, which is rare in itself. Um, you can always find untouched snow if you know where to go. I mean, there's, the mountain is so big. Um, there's just not enough people going there, maybe two to 300 people on a busy day. You know, there's just so much terrain there's not enough people there to track it all up. So, you know, that's part of my job, taking people over there is helping them to find that, uh, that untouched snow. And sometimes you have to uh, hike a little bit and work a little bit harder for it, but it's always there. And, you know, not that I've skied everywhere in the world, but it's, it's one of those unique destinations where you can find amazing snow. Um, and it's super cheap, you know, it's like five to $6 a run, $130 a week for a live ticket. And wow, yeah, the way that we sell it, it's basically it's lift accessible heli type skiing, but for a fraction of of the price. It's pretty good. I mean, obviously you've got to get there. It's it's a long way to travel, um, you know. And I, and I think for a lot of people, just having to to fly for several days to get to India and then up to the Himalayas can be a little bit off putting. But um, once you're there, I mean, you have an amazing mountain. I, I get goosebumps just thinking about you know going there every year. And then I love people's reaction when we take them to Gulmarg and then they get the gondola, they get to the mid-station of the gondola and they get off and they look up and they can see the whole expanse of the mountain for the first time. And, you know, most people, uh, the jewels drop. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool seeing, seeing people, how, how stoked they are for the first time to be there. Walk us through what it's like. How do you get there? And so you say you're flying for days and then how many people are you bringing? Is, is it an adventure in itself getting there? Yeah, it, it can be. And we try and minimize the stress and, and help people when they make their bookings. Um, we tell them exactly where what they need to do and where they need to go. Um, so generally, you have to fly to Delhi, which is pretty accessible from most of the major airports now in the United States. Um, that can be a bit of a long flight. 
But normally, so let's say if our program starts on the Sunday, then you'll need to get a flight to Delhi that gets you in on the Saturday. Uh, most of the international flights come in uh, late in the afternoon, normally early, you know, late in the evening or early in the morning the next day. So you'll need to overnight in Delhi and then catch a short uh, domestic flight to the capital of Kashmir, Srinagar. So it's about an hour and 15-minute flight. We always tell our people, sit on the right side of the plane because then you get the views of the Himalayas, which are pretty spectacular. Um, you fly to uh, the Srinagar, well, they call it an international airport now, but uh, it's actually a, uh, like most airports in India, um, they're um, air force bases as well. So you fly in and then you'll see like all of the buildings, um, they're all painted camouflage and you'll see MiGs and attack helicopters in their, uh, in their hangars as you taxi into the uh, terminal. And then basically we're there to meet you at the airport and then uh, jump in one of our uh, taxis. And uh, it's about, depending on the road conditions, about an hour and a half to two hours to get up to uh, Gulmarg. You'll be uh, <laughs> experiencing uh, Indian driving straight away, which is always exciting. Yeah, so if you survive the drive up to the mountain, then uh, we take you straight to the hotel. Then it's checking in. Depending on the hotel you stay at, most of our guests seem to be going for this new five-star hotel that we stay at now called the Kaiba Hotel, which is an, an amazing uh, resort. Um, you have a, a local cup of Kashmiri tea called Kava. And then you settle into your accommodation, and then we get straight into our avalanche safety training program. Um, we start off with a indoor theory session, and then we do some beacon practice. And then the next day, we start our avalanche, our in-depth on-snow avalanche safety training out on the mountain. So yeah, so I saw these trips are for two weeks, right? Yep. That yeah. seems uh, that seems like a ton of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing these avalanche safety courses. Are those precautionary or there are some regions on the mountain where you could find yourself in some trouble? Apart from the two bowls that are directly underneath the gondola, um, the rest of the mountain is completely uncontrolled and normally unpatrolled. And avalanches can and do happen in Gulmarg. So we always carry avalanche safety gear. So beacon, shovel probe, backpack. Um, we could do a lot of in-depth training on how to, to use all of that gear. But there's, you know, we kind of prepare for the worst and, and hope for the best where we have it, we understand how to use it in case of an emergency. But when we're skiing out of the controlled area, then tactically we try and reduce as much risk as we can. I mean, there's always going to be avalanche hazard, but we try and uh, ski lines as safely as we can. You know, often we'll have to ski stuff one at a time. We'll ski from islands of safety, always watching each other, things like that. Because, yeah, you know, avalanches uh, unfortunately do happen in Gulmarg. There's been two avalanche fatalities close to the gondola, just outside of the controlled area. Unfortunately, there was a uh, an avalanche uh, back in January, about 10 days before we were due to leave for our trips this year. And a, uh, a, Swiss, a Swiss man called Honor Roy, unfortunately, uh, he was killed in a big slide this year. So it's something that uh, there is always the uh, the ever-present uh, risk of avalanche, and it's something that we do take very seriously. So yeah, you know, Gulmarg is a serious mountain, and, and that's a, a part of our service, is uh, trying to keep our clients as safe as possible. The Western United States seems to take avalanche safety pretty seriously. Do they have that same sort of mentality in India? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. Um 
there's definitely the those that are more certified and qualified locally and then there's several cowboys that, that aren't. We are starting to work with local guides and they need to be uh, certified through the local training program that is conducted by the uh, Gulmarg Snow Safety Team and the Ski Patrol. Um, and we also put them through our own training as well. Our guides are tail gunners. They're not lead guides, so they'll be at the back, and they're there just as a bit of a backup. And if you go to, there's, a, there's an important website, um, gulmargsnowsafety.org, and it has a list of who all of the certified local guides are. Hmm. So let's say if you were coming to Gulmarg and you weren't part of our program but you wanted to use just a local guide on your own, then that's probably the best resource is to go to that website and have a look and see who are the uh, the certified local guides. Um, what's unique about Gulmarg that I really appreciate is the fact that there is, I mean, there's a ski patrol there. They're all very experienced and that is headed normally by a Western uh, snow safety officer. The snow safety team, they put out an avalanche report um, every day, which is posted online and it's posted at the gondola. And that's really, really useful because typically we're only over there for maybe three to five weeks at a time. And we can use those reports before our season starts and see how the snowpack is developing so that Mm. when we get over there, we already have a really good idea on how the conditions are going to be. And then we can go out there, we can dig pits, we can uh, perform uh, snowpack analysis and just confirm what what we've been uh, reading about. So, I mean, that's pretty unique in where you have basically a a backcountry ski area that has a ski patrol, has a snow safety team as well. And they have a, uh, they post a daily avalanche bulletin as well. So yeah, absolutely. So you combine all of this with a lesson is what I read. Basically, you're still giving people ski lessons out there, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little bit different. It's not the same as, you know, if you were in a ski resort, say where I teach back in, uh, in school, you know, where, you know, you're in a backcountry area. So the focus is always on safety. That's the number one priority. Uh, it's not like if we're working on, you know, someone's technique, you know, we can go off and do a, a groomed easy run and right. just work on a, on a new movement and then take it back into the powder. You know, it doesn't quite work like that. So the way that we do it, I mean, we, we do uh, uh, work on technique, but it's, it's more giving people pointers, you know. We watch them coming down the hill. We say, okay, right, I want you to focus on this. We can do video analysis as well when it's safe. So when we're feeling good about the stability of the snow, we can get our video cameras out and film people and then take that back to the hotel at the end of the day and then watch the uh, footage so that the clients can see what they're doing. And then we have uh, tech talks as well. Hmm. Um, a couple of times a week we might talk about ski technique and you know how that relates to what people are doing on their skis. So that's where we kind of differentiate ourselves in the market where you know there is a focus on skier and border improvement as well. Because nearly all of our guides are also fully certified either ski or snowboard instructors as well that have a lot of backcountry experience. I think it's a fantastic idea. I think of my parents who absolutely love ski lessons. They're always asking me for tips and tricks. And I I guess the best part of it is that I only need a few of them because they forget them after a few weeks anyway. (laughs) So, so, I mean, these are repeat customers. And if you combine the great skiing experience with those lessons, that's a good business model. Yeah, no one else is really doing that in in Gulmark. You know, most other companies, it's just really all about guiding. And, you know, that's a massive part of our operation as well. You know, it is all about skiing and riding untouched powder as much as possible and then getting better at it. And we hope to take that business model and have a similar program going in uh, Japan and 
South America, New Zealand, and hopefully some other really exotic places like Russia, um, Iran, if the political situation ever calms down there, Turkey, wherever people aren't going, um, wherever there's good snow and, and opportunities for cultural immersion. Yeah, that's absolutely. We, that's where we want to go. Yeah, it seems like it's more than just a two-week ski every day until you can't ski anymore type trip. I also heard about these things uh, on your website called houseboats. When yeah. I, I don't really know what to think about a houseboat. I picture it like a ice fishing house that floats that people just <laughs> hang out in. And so what are, what are these houseboats? Well, the houseboats, and it's such a, a unique, amazing way to finish off the trip. So we, uh, we head back down to Srinagar, back down to the capital um, for our last night's stay. Um, we go to Dal Lake. Dal Lake is this big lake and they have these, basically, they're like barges, but they've been turned into little three to four bedroom floating hotels. And you take these little water taxis called shikaras out to your uh, houseboat. And then you have a, a houseboat, uh, the owner or the manager, he's there and he does all of the cooking for you. And then it's just such a beautiful way to, to basically chill out and relax and kind of reminisce about your trip um, right at the end of your stay. That's where actually the Beatles used to stay in the 1970s. I won't speculate about what they, what they would do on these barges. but um, <laughs> Probably the same thing there. that you guys are doing on the barges. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, if the Beatles are there to unwind and drink beer and, and reminisce about their trip then that's exactly what, what they were doing i think well. that's why they were pretty successful <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that's that's what we do um i mean that the barges are beautiful you know they're done in the the ornate kashmiri style with uh, beautifully presented and they have these uh, ornate wooden carvings you know without having seeing it yourself in the flesh it's it's hard for you to to kind of really grasp what i'm talking about let's just say that it's it's an amazing way of unwinding at the end of your trip and just adds a whole nother level to the experience you know again it's just it's not all about the skiing the houseboats are an important part of that whole cultural immersion side of our adventures as well yeah and you have this fully functioning business where people come and they go on these trips but i also noticed that you have sponsors that work with you yeah, we have a, a list of sponsors um, that have helped us out over the years, and they've been really, really important. Um, without them, you know, life would be a lot harder. And um, you know, they provide us often with a lot of the gear that we we need and, and use. I saw these grace skis, which I I don't think I've seen those before. I saw them on your website, and they basically look like these big wooden planks. But I imagine <laughs> they'd be good for the backcountry. And then I saw that one was. 138 millimeters underfoot. That's five and a half inches. So how awesome are those puppies in the powder? Yeah, I mean, Grace Skis is probably our longest relationship. Um, The owner of Grace Skis is a good friend of mine. His name is David Lichty. And he's based out of uh, Denver in Colorado. And that's been a, a hugely important relationship. The great thing there is that Grace Skis obviously provides us with uh, skis uh, for our guides, hopefully some uh, split boards as well mm. in the years to come. And what's been really fun working with Dave is that we've actually been able to help in the design process of some of his skis, especially the fatter skis that he has in his range. So a lot of the feedback we've given him from testing his skis in the Himalayas have gone into improving his design. So the two skis that really stick out, you've got the uh, Grace Skis Kylie, which is 120 millimeters underfoot. That was actually the first Grace Ski that we uh, took out to uh, uh, Gulmarg. I think that was back in 2012. 
And then for the last two years, I've been skiing a ski called the Grace Kiwi, and that's the one that you were just referring to. That's a big ski. So that's 138 millimeters underfoot. And that was the ski that I really wanted. Uh, I mean, the Grace Kylies were nice. I mean, you would think that 120 millimeters underfoot would be fat <laughs> enough, right? But no, I wanted to go fatter. Gulmog is, is a place <laughs> that you can legitimately use a really fat ski. And 138 millimeters underfoot works very well over there. I mean, we, we are skiing a lot of uh, untouched powder. I'll, I'll be honest, you know, it's not always, you know, super light and dry. You know, sometimes it can be a little bit heavier. Um, but it's normally pretty good quality snow. And the, the Grace uh, Kiwi ski goes very well. I mean, it, it's a heavy ski. That's, that's a, a lot of material right there. So when we do uh, have to hike and skin, then it's, it's a bit of extra weight to carry around. But personally, I'm all about the down. So I will <laughs> compromise. And, and it helps me lose weight as well. Um, <laughs> makes me a little bit fitter by the end of the trip if I'm carrying around a really heavy ski. The other really cool thing is that we, uh, we package the skis in um, for our clients. And we actually produce a Gulmog limited edition uh, ski for our clients. They get a really good uh, price. They get a custom ski that has like a Gulmog Snow Monkey uh, logo on it. Oh, wow. has, their, has their name printed on it too. Um, so a lot of our clients actually end up buying Grace skis because um, it's a really good price and take them over there with them. If Grace skis is ever looking for a slogan, you could have a fat ski to help you lose weight. It's perfect. <laughs> so you can steal that for, and take all the royalties or whatever you'd get from the fatter, it. Yeah. The fatter the ski, the thinner the skier. <laughs> yeah, I like it, yeah. So we'll, we'll throw that one around. But, um, Hopefully Dave will hear this and yeah, they <laughs> marketing slogan right there. There we go. So uh, to kind of wrap things up, Ben and I just wanted to bring up one topic that was kind of interesting uh, with you traveling to these different areas all around the world. There's a growing amount of Western tourism, especially in the ski industry, it seems like. And some people can think this could be disruptive to certain cultures. What's your perspective on it since you've been there a few times? Yeah, um, I don't think it's disruptive to the the local Kashmiri uh, culture at all because before the uh, political troubles in the 1990s, I mean, uh, tourism was one of the major industries um, of Kashmir. So the locals are, uh, you know, are, are very warm. Um, they want to see the tourists coming back. And, you know, the domestic travel market, especially in the summertime, is, is huge. There's a lot of domestic Indian visitors coming back to Kashmir as well. Because in the summertime, I hear that it's a beautiful place as well. I haven't mm. been there in the summertime. I'd, I'd love to go, but hopefully uh, in the next couple of years. The fact that Western visitors are starting to come back, it's a huge thing. It's hugely important for the locals and, and especially those that are involved in the, the tourist industry. And, you know, for a lot of them, that's a big part of their uh, their income. Specifically with American visitors to a Muslim state, you know, maybe people that haven't been there before might be a little bit nervous about visiting a, a Muslim state. And I think once you get over there, you'll, you'll find that certainly the Kashmiris that I've met, you know, they have no prejudices towards any of the uh, the western people especially once they get to know you i'll tell you a funny story about the uh, the first time i i took guests from america in uh, i think 2011 we were staying at this uh, new hotel called the hotel haven we only had a small group we had there was about i think five or six of us you know we had a wonderful stay and then at, at the end of our trip the uh, hotel manager came over to me and he kind of called me into his office and he said oh matt you know 
listen, and I'll be honest with you, we were we were a little bit nervous about having Americans here in our hotel before. We'd never had anyone here from America. And I have to say that we loved having American people yeah. here and we want you to bring back as many as possible. <laughs> and, and that just I mean that was so heartwarming right there. When you are a repeat visitor to the area, I mean the locals, they remember you and they're huggers out there. They love to hug and I'm I'm a hugger too. And um, you know, you are treated like family, even in a hotel. Again, you know, it just adds the whole cultural experience part of the trip and there's nowhere else that I've been to where I've experienced that same warmth where you are genuinely, you know, welcome and, you know, more than just a guest, you're treated as part of the family and uh, I love that. It's it's amazing. Um, you know, I, I, have, I have so many friends in Kashmir now that are on Facebook. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. I'm not tearing up but uh, <laughs> I, I, it, it does bring a, a genuine warmth to my heart to, to talk about it and to kind of reminisce about some of the experiences that I've had. Absolutely. It's awesome how passionate you are about this and obviously Kashmir is the main focus right now but you do have plans of going to different areas. Yeah, we look forward to following your progress with your business and seeing it expand. I hope that you don't get a little bit too much of what Ben and I call the shiny object syndrome and you try to go to 100 places. But the Gulmarg trip sounds amazing and uh, you can find all of those trips and any future trips at theadventureproject.net. And don't forget, Russell, that Matt is offering an early bird special for the Adventure Project trips coming up this winter. $200 off if you purchase by June 30th. You could also find it on the Meister Deals page on our website. Yeah, go check out that page. We're starting to build up a lot of really great deals there. And then uh, any other information with Grace Skis and any other links and videos learning more about his adventures, uh, just come to our website, mtnmeister.com. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. Well, I do have to obviously thank our sponsors. Uh, so Grace Skis, Adventure Medical Kits, Rescue Bubble, Portable Rescue Sleds, Power Gloves, Douchebags. That's... <laughs> oh, you ended <laughs> with <travel> Douchebags. <laughs> no, no, Travel Bag. Douchebags, Travel Bag. Okay, Sorry, okay. okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what they do. I'm not calling Power Gloves Douchebags. <laughs> I, I thought you were thanking us, the Douchebags. <laughs> no, no, different Douchebags. Uh, Kind Design and Smith Optics. And then I definitely want to give a big shout-out to to my team, uh, Tim, Tim Williams in New Zealand, uh, Carl Welter, who's in Telluride, Jeremy Wood and Derek Lennon, who are in uh, Big Sky, Montana. Um, without those guys, then we, we just wouldn't have a business at all. So thank you to Mountain Meisters for uh, putting this together, and uh, hopefully the listeners enjoy what they heard today. Awesome, yeah. Well, we definitely enjoyed it. Thanks, Matt. Hello, Meister fans. Hope you enjoyed today's episode with Matt Appleford. Tomorrow on the show, we have Alexi Masinski, a professional slopestyle skier whose Olympic run to Sochi got cut short by a season-ending injury. If you'd like to continue listening to her and other episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast. And something that would really help us out is if you left us a review on iTunes. 